0: book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
1: Welcome to the 310th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with horror and suspense author J.G. Faraday, an author of the novel Hell Rider. And stay tuned after the interview for an excerpt from the audiobook of Hell Rider. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. Listen to audiobooks during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. Reading and Writing Podcast special offer? Get two audiobooks for the price of one with your first month of membership, with code RWPODCAST. That's code RWPODCAST for two audiobooks for the price of one for your first month of membership at Libro.fm. Well, welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is horror and suspense writer J.G. Faraday. Faraday's novels include Hellrider, The Cure, Carnival of Fear, and The Forthcoming Sins of the Father. J.G., welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you.
2: It's great to be here, Jeff.
1: Sure. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about your novel Hellrider
2: yet, how would you describe the novel? Um, I guess the best way to describe it would be it's very grindhouse and think Quentin Tarantino if he decided to do a supernatural version of Sons of Anarchy.
1: (laughs) Great. Well, do you remember the original idea that led you to write Hellrider?
2: actually it was sons of anarchy because i was a big fan of that show but my wife and i were watching it one night and i don't know if if you watched it while it was on i haven't watched it yet okay um (laughs) it's you know it's all about bikers and gangs and stuff but they get in trouble all the time like no matter what they do they get caught so we were laughing we were saying these guys are like the worst bikers ever and then i said to myself because this is how ideas come to writers. It would be really cool if there was a ghost. (laughs) And then I said, hmm, a ghost and some really bad bikers. That could be a cool story. And then I just, you know, the next day sat down at my desk and started jotting down some notes and worked out the basic plot.
1: And so can you describe your um, other upcoming novel, Sins of the Father, that I think is scheduled for August? Um, hopefully August. Okay.
2: We're that's the plan right okay. now, right. and you know, with COVID and everything, exactly. there might be a delay, but we're still on track so far. I've gotten all of my edits into the publisher. Um, basically, *Sins of the Father* came about in a slightly different way. I had done a couple of Lovecraftian short stories, and I always wanted to try my hand at a novel that. Dealt strictly with that, rather than just having elements of, you know, the elder gods or something like that in there. But everything, you know, it, there's been so much done in that that subgenre. I didn't want to be repetitive, and I was doodling around with some other things one day, and we were talking about uh, Frankenstein and Mary Shelley and. Victorian horror. And I said, Lovecraft mixed with Frankenstein, what would that be like? Like somebody creating a creature or somebody discovering a way to call forth a creature? You know, what would happen if Mary Shelley was writing Lovecraftian fiction? And then I said, I want to do this. And unlike a lot of other things I've written, the idea didn't come to me in a flash. So for weeks and weeks, I just sat down fiddling around with different ideas and eventually came up with the idea of this man in uh, New England, back in the Victorian times, uh, discovering something underneath the town. And from there, It was like, okay, what kind of monster are we going to have? But I still wanted that Frankenstein element to it. So I changed it so that the, the book's really not about the monster. The book is about the person, or actually a couple of people in the story, almost becoming monsters. They become the evil people. And from there, it all becomes about personality and the human nature, rather than just a creature attacking a city.
1: Gotcha. So, what are your earliest memories of books and reading?
2: Going back into early childhood, I would say the first true horror novel or story that I ever wrote, I mean, read, was probably something by Edgar Allan Poe. I was a big fan of his as a kid. And I know that I had to have started with short stories because. Even though I can't remember the exact story, the exact year, or anything like that, it's my memory's foggy going back that far, I know I was too young to be reading novels. So, you know, we're probably talking seven, eight years old. Um, I know at that point I was already watching horror movies on television and shows like The Outer Limits and Dark Shadows and uh, that, that sort of thing. So I'm going to guess it was Edgar Allan Poe, because I know my parents had those books, So it was probably his short stories. The earliest novel I can remember reading was Dracula, uh, quickly followed by Frankenstein. And then from there, I worked my way through the classics. But as a young boy growing up, I was also interested in young adult stuff. So I was a huge fan of the Hardy Boys. And that, I think, more than anything, built a love of horror for me as opposed to it just being something that was scary and I enjoyed.
1: The Hardy Boys, you mean?
2: Yeah, yeah. I I loved, I devoured those mysteries. I actually still have all the books from when I was a kid. Great.
1: Well, what was the path to publication for you with your first novel? Had you always wanted to be a writer?
2: I had, I, I won't say I always wanted to be a writer. In college, I think, was when I decided I wanted to be a writer, or I wanted to try being a writer. I had done a few things in third grade, fifth grade. Some of them I didn't even remember. I found a box of stuff in my parents' basement a few weeks ago that actually contained some short stories about a, a murderous cat that I had written back then. But for the most part, throughout school, I didn't do a lot of writing um, for pleasure. And in college, I was a big Stephen King fan, and I decided, wow, maybe I could try my hand at writing. Maybe I could do this. That would be such a great way to make a living. So I sat down and I wrote three chapters of a novel. And it was about kids camping around a lake and something comes out of the lake. And I went back and I was reading it. And I was like, this is just awful. I mean, This is terrible stuff. (laughs) I'm no Stephen King. I'm no Dean Koontz, you know? <laughs> and this was, I mean, this was before the internet and everything. I didn't know about having beta readers, having editors before the book went to the publisher. I didn't know about first drafts, second drafts, third drafts. I knew none, nothing. I just knew that, you know, to me, writing was like music, like if you were a prodigy. You sat down, you did it, you gave it to your editor, they proofread it, and it was a book. I said, I can't do that. I'm not good enough to do that. So I stopped and uh, actually thought I'd thrown that away. And it was in the box of things that I found. So <laughs> I went back and looked at it, you know, and was like, all right, well, it's not good, but it probably with some proofreading and a few drafts could have worked into an actual novel. Uh, so again, college, I gave it up. I said, I suck at this. I'm not, I'm never going to be a writer. So, Okay. That's one thing off the list. And then in 2000, I answered an ad to do freelance writing for um, a company that produces test preparation guides for the third, fourth, and fifth grade English tests that uh, kids have to take in school, the mm-hmm. standardized tests. Yep. And I said... Well, this should be pretty easy. This is some quick money during the summer. So I started working on those. And part of it required you to do fiction reading uh, samples. So you'd have to write two pages of a reading sample, and then the kids would have to answer questions about it. And I wrote those questions as well. And it just, boom, it came to me. I, oh, here's one about a raccoon that can talk. Here's one about kids that find a cave with a thing living in it. And all these different kinds of ideas came to me and I wrote them. And the editors at the company were like, well, this is great stuff. This is great stuff. And they hired me to do five more books. Uh, As I said, huh, I wonder if maybe I could write a short story. And right at the same time, I heard about a convention in Westchester called lunicon it doesn't exist anymore but it was for mostly science fiction writers Mm -hmm. and this was in the early days of the internet and somebody said oh yeah people are going to lunicon it's a great way to meet editors and publishers and other writers okay it's 15 miles from my house i'm gonna go so i went and i met uh, a bunch of people some publishers some editors uh, and one of the writers that i met was genie cavallos Um, She's big into horror and science fiction. She's done writing and editing, and she runs the Odyssey uh, workshop for writers every year. We started talking, and she said, you want to be a writer? I said, yeah. She goes, I've got a book coming out, an anthology that I'm doing about Van Helsing. This is right around the same time that the movie came out, and they were trying to capitalize on that. She said, send me something. I said, okay, when do you need it? And she said, in four
3: days.
2: (laughs) Now, here I am. I've never written anything longer than two pages in my life. I went home. I wrote this whole story. Never had time to proofread it, edit it, nothing. I barely got it finished in time, and I sent it to her. And I waited, and I waited. And a couple weeks later, she wrote back. She goes, I'm really sorry. She goes, you didn't make it in. She goes, but you were the last story we cut. She goes. If I could have taken one more story, you would have gotten in. She said, "Don't give this up. You are a writer. Keep writing." And after that, I was just like, "Wow, I can really do this and make money <laughs> at it." And I started going to more conventions, meeting more writers, taking other classes. Uh, after taking, after actually meeting with Tom Monteleone and Paul Wilson at a convention. About a year later, I got my first short story published, and from then on, I worked steadily in short stories for about six or seven years, and then in 2010, had my first novel published.
1: And so, uh, what was the first short story that you had published, do you remember? Ooh, good
2: question. It was, oh, man. I know, honestly, I don't remember what (laughs) the first one, because I had three come out in the same year. Right. Which Um, would have been about 2002. And one of them was about a guy using spiders to kill his ex-wife. It was only, it was a, I don't want to say it was flash fiction. It was a little bit longer than flash fiction, probably 2,500 words. It was called The Good Spider. Uh, And then I had another one come out at the same time, uh, about some kids who see a ghost in the woods. So it was one of those two, but yeah, it was 2002, 2003 was when I started getting published.
1: And so did you end up selling the short story that you had sent for the Van Helsing anthology? I did.
2: Um, Oh, I rewrote it a few times because right. it was not in good shape. I mean, Jeannie said she was going to accept it, but I know there would have been a lot of work that had to be done with it. Um, I probably sold that around 2008 or so to an anthology uh, about vampires. Gotcha. So, so how was
1: the transition for you between those, I think you said six or seven years when you were writing short stories uh, until you started writing and publishing your first novel?
2: The transition was odd. Um, I really enjoyed writing short stories. And I could never see myself writing anything longer than five or 6,000 words. And one night, and, and I've said this in print before, so it's not a Martin Luther King kind of thing, but one night I had a dream. And in this dream, I saw this carnival run by demons, and people were stuck in the different attractions and i saw every single scene for a novel for actually for several novels and stories uh, all these different things happening i saw the characters i had their names every single scene was laid out like you were watching a movie and i woke up in the morning and i remembered it all and i grabbed a notebook and a pen and i went out on my back deck it was in the summer and i started writing and writing and writing. And s- six days later, seven days later, I had 120,000 words down. Wow. i It was insane. I mean, I devoted almost every single minute outside of work to, to writing this stuff down. And then I transferred it into the computer. And I. So you again, were doing
1: all that longhand?
2: Yeah, I wrote it all longhand. I still have it. <laughs> so maybe, maybe it'll be a collector's thing. But still being poorly educated in the world of publishing, I didn't let anyone else read it. I didn't workshop it. I didn't do anything with it, really. I just started trying to sell it to publishers, figuring, you know, their editing team will work with me. And that's not how it goes. But I didn't know that. and I got rejected all over the place. So then I joined a workshop. We workshopped it. I got it down from 120 to maybe 110,000 words. And then I took the Borderlands Boot Camp class with Tom Monteleone. And I had people like Tom, Paul Wilson, uh, Jack Ketchum, all these different people critiquing the book. You know, David Morrell sat down and worked with me on it. It was crazy intense. And we got it down to like 90,000 words. And it still wasn't selling. And then um, in the HWA at the time, Deborah LeBlanc, who's also a fairly famous writer, she was uh, assigned to me as a mentor through the mentor program. We workshopped it. And then we finally got it into shape. And I sold it in 2010. I wrote it, the original longhand version, in 2007. And it took three years to get it in shape to be published. So So that transition was hard for me. Not the writing part, because that just happened. I didn't try it.
0: You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable.
3: With Professional grade industrial supplies count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. And so,
1: uh, what do you feel like you learned from that process of those three years?
2: I learned number one to never send something to a publisher or an editor. That I don't feel is already worth, is, is already in shape to be published. Don't stick them with all that work. Now, everything I write, I belong to a group of beta readers, and we all read each other's books and short stories. And it shows. When I send stuff to my editor now, I always get comments back like, this is the cleanest manuscript we've ever seen. You know, I see other writers, they say, oh my God, the edits came back and it's going to take me weeks to do all this. I get my edits back. I finish them in two days. It means the writing process is longer because I go through like the novel that I'm working on now. I'm on draft 10 and it's not finished yet, but it's clean up to the point where I've gotten to. I won't have to make many edits once I send it to them. Right. Right. When you are writing a
1: novel, do you outline or do you write more organically?
2: The process that I typically use is I come up with an idea. It might be a concept. It might be the first chapter. It might just be a character in a certain situation. And I'll write the first two or three chapters. I'll write and I'll write until I run out of steam. And then basically, running out of steam for me means all right, I can't keep track of anything anymore. I don't know what's going to happen after this point until the ending. So that's when I sit down and I do kind of my version of an outline, which is more like a five or six sentence summary of what I want to happen in each chapter. And I do those longhand in a notebook. And that way I can actually – kind of cut them out and move them around if I need to. But as I sit down at the computer and write, I've got that outline there and that just keeps me on track. So I don't veer off in the wrong direction. Sometimes what I will need to do is if I get stuck in a chapter is then sit down and really work on outlining that whole chapter in more detail. Um, but I don't create an outline before I start writing. And that, that's just me. I mean, other people, I, mean, I know some great writers that they have everything laid out on index cards or in notebooks, and they sit down and it's bang, 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 and they never veer off track. And I know other writers who have never used an outline at all. Everything is seat of the pants. I'm in between. Gotcha. So if you
1: ever have a day where the writing isn't going well, do you have any um, tricks or things that you do?
2: Yeah, I'm a little, I call it a little bit ADHD about it. Other people just call me scatterbrained. Um, I've always got a few novels and a couple of short stories that I'm working on. And there'll be one primary one and then what I call my backups. So if I sit down and one day I'm having trouble writing on something, I'll work with it. I'll fight with it. I'll go back and reread some chapters and see why I'm having trouble. If a few days goes by and I'm still having trouble with the book, to me, that means my subconscious isn't ready to go where it needs me to go. I will put that book aside and start working on something else. And I'll go through all my list of in-progress projects until I find the one that hits me. It's like, oh, yeah, this is what I want to do. You know, Sometimes you need that break from something for days or weeks or even months to spark the imagination again. Uh, and that's why it takes me so long to write a novel. A lot of people can write three novels a year. I probably do one. But in that process, I also start three or four and, and do five or six short stories. So I'm, I'm bouncing around a lot. Um, Right now, the novel that I'm working on, it's the first time in my life I've ever had a deadline because I promised it to the editor by um, August. And that means that now I can't bounce around. So for me, it's been a little bit of a learning situation to force myself. All right, you don't feel like writing this today, but you have to. Sit your butt in the chair move past this block of whatever it is that's bothering you about this character or this scene and just do it. And what's happening is I'll do it. And then next week or the week after, that scene that I wrote today, still, I don't like it. And I'll stop what I'm doing and I'll go back and I'll rewrite that scene. So I'm constantly, like this past week, I've been rewriting chapter four of the book. Because what I did in chapter 24 meant that chapter 4 had to change. And I can't finish the book in my head knowing that chapter 4 is wrong. So I have to go back and fix that before I can move forward again. Gotcha.
1: What advice would you offer for listeners who are writing their own stories and novels?
2: Find your own schedule. Find your own way of doing it. You know, it, it helps to know what other people do. People will give you advice, write an hour a day, write two hours a day. Don't skip a day. Um, write at a desk, go into a store or, you know, or, or, well, be tough to go into a coffee shop now and write, but <laughs> once you can do it again, right. uh, uh, you know, write longhand, right. You know, read through all the advice. Discover why people do what they do, why other writers work the way they do, and then try all these different things till you find what fits you the best. Um, For me, it's writing in the morning, editing in the afternoon. Other people, it might be the reverse. Some people say, oh, you've got 20 minutes. Right. I can't do that. It takes me 10 or 15 minutes to get involved in the book again. Um, So everybody's different. The only things that I think are universal are that
0: and I don't want to say
2: good writers so much as you know, professional writers, um, steady writers that use whatever term you want. They do try to do some type of writing every day. Now, it might not be writing new words. It might be editing what you wrote yesterday. It might be outlining what you want to write tomorrow. Just don't put things away, because sometimes when you put them away for too long, you lose that ability to spark your imagination and get the creativity flowing. It takes longer. Uh, I know there's been times when, for whatever circumstances there might be, something happened at work, um, something happened in your personal life, and you can't write for like a week or two. All of a sudden you sit down and it's like you're starting all over again. The magic isn't there. You've got to learn it again. It's almost like a muscle that atrophies. Um, So do something involving your creative fiction every day, um, other than reading other people's work. Uh, And the other thing would be have people around you that will give you honest criticism. Not necessarily what you want to hear, but what you need to hear. You know, you need people like my beta readers who will tell you if a story sucks. They will tell you if your character is not politically correct and it's going to bother the editor. They'll tell you if your science doesn't make sense. You, you need people like that. Um, writing is a hard job. Getting published is a hard job. And... You need a thick skin if you want to get better.
1: You you mentioned reading earlier. What books have you read recently that you would recommend?
2: Hmm. That's a good question. I don't do a lot of reading while I'm working on a novel because I find that reading somebody else's style or somebody else's plots interferes with me imagining what's happening in my story. Um, I think the last book that I read was by Michael McBride and I'm trying to remember the name of it. I can actually open up my Kindle and tell you about it. (laughs) Michael McBride is a writer from Colorado who does a lot of supernatural mysteries and things like that. And, um, He's very similar to, if you enjoy books by, um, uh, what's their name there? <laughs> you can tell I'm losing it. That's okay. Uh, um, no James Rollins. That was the, kind of, the, the author I was thinking of. Exactly. He's very similar to James Rollins when he does his supernatural thrillers. Mm-hmm. And I, I just love him. Um, But he just did a new book and he used a pseudonym for it, Michael Lawrence. That's the pseudonym. And the book is The Extinction Agenda. Great. Um, It's, again, it's sort of a thriller, spy action thing with just a twist of the supernatural thrown in. It's good stuff.
1: So where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your books?
2: Uh, I'm in all the usual places uh, Amazon, JG Faraday, Twitter, JG Faraday, um, Instagram, JG Faraday. So I'm all over there, and I have my own website, jgfaraday.com, uh, which is where you can also catch up on my blog. Uh, and honestly, I don't, I ever since all this stuff started, I haven't been keeping up with the blog very well. Again, <laughs> getting wrapped up in the novels tends to make me forget a lot of other projects. Uh, The other things I've been working on are for the Horror Writers Association. We're doing our annual Summer Scares program right now, um, where we work with United for Libraries, American Library Association, and some other organizations to provide reading lists for all the different grade categories to libraries. Uh, so that, you know, kids can have something to read over the summer. And we get the authors, who we recommend, to actually be involved. So this year, instead of having an event at one of our conventions, everything's going to be virtual. So there'll be YouTube videos, Skype sessions, things like that. And it's all to get kids to read more horror. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking
1: with J.G. Faraday, author of Hell Rider and many other horror novels Go buy a copy of the novel now. And J.G., thanks for doing this interview.
2: Hey, it's my pleasure.
1: I'm glad that we got to connect. Great. And now stay tuned for a short excerpt from the audiobook Hell Rider, narrated by Robert G.
4: Slade and available wherever audiobooks are sold. Only a few hours before his life ended in agonizing fashion, Eddie Rider's night was already going so badly he figured it couldn't possibly get any worse. After another day of almost no business at the garage, of just sitting around twiddling his dick and sweating from the heat, he'd stopped at the Piggly Wiggly on the way home to grab a pack of smokes and a six-pack for dinner. As he set his purchases on the counter, the clerk's face turned sickly pale. Despite a bad reputation in town, Eddie knew his mere presence wasn't enough to warrant that kind of immediate reaction, which meant the clerk's sudden anxiety had to be the result of something or someone else. His fear was confirmed when a loud, raspy voice spoke from the entrance. Looky here, fellas, if it ain't our good friend little Eddie. I knew I smelled pussy. Instead of turning around, Eddie placed $20 on the counter, pocketed his smokes, and picked up his beer. Don't worry, he whispered to the wide-eyed clerk. I'll make sure they don't cause you any trouble tonight. The clerk nodded, too frightened to speak. Eddie took a deep breath and then turned to confront the three Hell Riders who'd entered the Piggly Wiggly. All of them wore denim vests with their names over their hearts and the words Hell Riders emblazoned on the back in bloody script, curved around a skull wearing a Nazi helmet, all against a backdrop of the Confederate flag. Not in here, Hank. Eddie nodded at the doors. Out in the parking lot. Henry Bowman, Hank to everyone in Hell Creek, shook his head. Long, unkempt brown hair slapped back and forth in time to his movements. No way, fuckface. Your ass is mine. Pointing a finger toward the ceiling, Eddie said, Cameras, remember? You start trouble in here, you'll end up in jail. Just like your brother. Leroy, Mouse, Bates, the smallest of the Hellriders, frowned. He's right. That's how Ned got caught the last time. Camera got him. Shit. Bowman jabbed a finger into Eddie's chest. You're lucky we got a party to go to. Otherwise, I'd smear you across the parking lot. Guess you'll have to wait for that ass beating. Don't worry, though. We know where to find you. Come on, boys, let's get us some beer. Eddie stood aside as the three of them walked past, all sneers and laughter, then nodded to the clerk and left the store's meager air conditioning for the wretched tropical heat and humidity of a typical summer night in South Florida. Ignoring the mosquitoes and biting flies that dived bombed him before he stepped two feet from the doors, he climbed onto Diablo. As the engine roared to life, he considered doing some damage to the three Harleys parked out front kick them over, run his knife along the gas tanks. But in the end, he just drove past. Even though he no longer belonged to the gang, he still adhered to the prime tenet of biker rules, the same rule that had kept Hank and his friends from touching Eddie's bike. You could do whatever you wanted to the person, but you didn't fuck with their wheels. Or their mother. The ten-mile ride back to the house gave Eddie too much time to think about gangs, mothers, and bikes all of them constant problems, entwined together and festering in his head. It had been almost a year since he'd taken his lawyer's advice, pled guilty to the robbery charge, and accepted one year's probation in return for ratting out fellow Hellrider Ned Bowman, Hank's older brother. Ned, the founder of the gang, a group, according to the club's lawyer, and the only member currently over the age of thirty— had molded an assortment of teenage and twenty something year old acolytes into a troop of beer swilling, hog riding petty criminals who were nothing more than Hell's Angels wannabes, although none of them knew it back then. Eddie had been right there with them, thinking he was all big and bad, believing that the police were just like the rest of the town, quivering in their boots whenever the Hell Riders tore through town on their obnoxiously loud Harleys. For three years, he'd believed he was the absolute shit, that nothing could stop him. He'd had no idea the local cops, who they'd all considered dumber than dirt, had merely been giving them enough rope to hang themselves. Sure enough, less than an hour after he and Ned had robbed the Piggly Wiggly by pretending they had guns in their pockets, Chief Jones and the boys in Brown had rolled up on his house.